Hi, and welcome to the 381st episode of the MWA podcast. I'm Kyle Barton. I'm here with my co-hosts, Sean Wasuski and Mark Hicks. Today, we're asking Emmett Van Dreisch the five questions. If you want to hear more about Emmett, be sure to check out his interview on episode 380. Did I get the name right this time? Nailed it. Yeah. Hot All diggy. right. Man, Kyle, Fantastic. Maybe I can just cut that out and put it in our previous episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Truism. Is- ooh, ooh, I'm spoiling the, uh, uh, I guess I'm spoiling the um, conceit that we actually uh, do these a week apart. So anyway. Anyway. Yes. So uh, let's move right along. So uh, do we have a uh, patron shout out this we week? We do. We do. We want to say thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. But today we want to single out Katie Thompson. Katie, we really appreciate your support. And we want to thank you for donating to support the expenses that we have to cover to make this podcast go off. Uh, If you would like to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash MWA podcast and pledge a little bit of cash for us. Fantastic. You're here. Pound never sponsored. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on to the five questions. So, Mark, I think you got the first one. Yes, I'm up first this time. Uh, So in your last interview, you talked about how um, you kind of had the idea to start doing something while you were watching your daughter play in the leaves and you just felt like you needed to be productive. Um, Is that was that your first foray into woodworking? Yes and no. Um, Okay. When I, when I was in college, uh, I had somebody try and steal away my girlfriend by carving her a wooden spoon. Oh, and, my. Ooh. Where did you go to college? Hold on. What? <laughs> I went oh, to man. Little, the, the whole wooden spoon college. thing takes a whole new dynamic now. <laughs> yeah, he, you know, he, like, really liked her, and he carved her a wooden spoon, and I thought, who the heck carves a wooden spoon? <laughs> and then, of course, I had to go out and carve a couple wooden spoons just to prove to myself that I could. So... Uh, it wasn't my first time around the rodeo, but the, the first time uh, was uh, me and a bit of butternut and a Swiss Army knife and a lot of sandpaper and and a, perhaps a, a you know wounded pride. Did you get her back wow. or did you lose her? No, I didn't lose her. No. <laughs> no, that was the other thing. It wasn't like it even worked. It just and in retrospect, <laughs> it was a really nice spoon. Um, but uh, yeah, so so that no. It, I had done just enough to sort of think that I could do it, which is probably just the right amount. Mm-hmm. You got the girl and the career. Right. <laughs> so either one of them members of the Spoon of the Month Club? <laughs> <laughs> and I've racked my brains trying to remember what the name of the guy was. I think I even got it right, but he's I think he's just, you know, one of these fall off the radar kind of people who don't have social media. So I haven't been able to hunt him down. Oh, man. Uh, then, uh, now I have to ask, how long ago was it? Oh, man, uh, college. I'm 38, so a long time ago. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, so, long enough like ago. It's like before it was cool to carve spoons. Yeah. True. Exactly, right? Which makes it even more remarkable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, depending on where you are, that there's competitive spoon carving, <laughs> you know, maybe in, in your section of the country. Yeah. Yeah, I have a spoon that was carved, well... Years and years ago, 2008, when we had the um, uh, hurricane that came through Galveston and uh, killed a bunch of the live oak trees, there was this guy that was carving spoons from those trees, and I bought bought a couple of them, um, and I still have one. And yeah, I was 
it was right when spoon carving was not quite there, but almost there, I think, at least in my mind. Um, and the, the spoon he did is great, but it's nothing like what I see out there now. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He crafts the, the artisanalness, you know, what, that's not yeah. a word, but you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. the level is up much higher. Exactly. With spoon carving, I, I once, I, I once got obsessed watching a, a, a really great Scottish band play that, you know, I mean, you know, sometimes traditional music, you just can't believe how fast they're playing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. You know, there was like a whole performative aspect to music that we were missing in the spoon carving scene that, that you know, we sort of felt as passionate about it. And yet there wasn't this, it wasn't, in, it wasn't inspiring to watch somebody do it. And so I, I thought, I thought to myself, how fast can I carve a spoon? And I set out to carve a spoon in 10 minutes. And I actually have a YouTube video of it. And, and it was a pretty decent, I mean, it was a usable, decent spoon. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't up to any sort of standards, but you could use it, you know, it was like a pretty good spoon, actually. But what I heard from people was that it was just kind of demoralizing to watch. It's <laughs> 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 still even more out of reach. So I never really pursued it further. But I do think there is there is a potential for there to be some sort of competitive spoon carving where speed is a part of the factor. You would have to get to a level where you felt like you could trust people to still be safe while doing it, you know, but I mean, they have sports where people, you know, use huge axes to chop down trees. Just have them sign a waiver. True. It's fine. Yeah. You you, the the hot saw competitions, the steel motor, you know, sports, they you know, those are all there. Yeah, because yeah, because definitely safety is is of mind when you're wielding sharp tools in mm-hmm. close. Practice. Well, we did have the woodworking Olympics where they were letting just anybody. Do That's that. very true, and it was there's it no, was there's a no axes. Yeah, there's no, no axes, saws, there, and but chisels, you know what? So. I saw a ripsaw buckle and throw a hunk. <laughs> oh boy, it was ugly. There many many comments about loose dovetails and and dangerous saw work were had at the woodworking at WI. Yeah. Sounds like fun. It, it was. was. <laughs> it <laughs> really was. <laughs> it really was. Well, anyway, um, moving right along. So what is your favorite tool? I would have to say my favorite tool right now has got to be my workshop. You know, just the whole making the, the workshop space. Mm-hmm. How much the space really shapes the activity. And, um, it, you know, my workshop is kind of unique. It's two of the sides are greenhouse plastic because uh, I realized that that was a really cheap way of allowing in a lot of light and not needing any any electricity. Um, <laughs> That's a good idea. Rather than cladding the walls and anything, um, mm-hmm. but it but it actually it it makes this sun filled space that I don't need to heat if the sun is out in the in the winter time and oh. and it's just. It's just a delight. And to have a space that sort of fits the activity so beautifully um, makes me aware of just how much it is as much of a tool as any of the more recognizable tools are. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. I think that's, that's the first workshop we've had. But, yeah, I can definitely see how that would play into it. Now, before you were working out of your kitchen, right? Yeah, exactly. I would, I would stand outside axing out the blanks until, you know, especially in the wintertime, you know, until I couldn't stand it anymore. Mm-hmm. And then, and then come into the kitchen. And then after a year or two of that, I would, I put my axing block into our, we have this little greenhouse that I've made out of bent saplings, but then covered with sort of industrial strength greenhouse plastic. So I would set that up each winter to work in. And that was okay if the sun was shining and it was, um, 
kind of miserable but doable if this if the sun was down or, or you know it was it was the sun wasn't shining but having a workshop that i can actually uh that i can actually heat and and also not having wood shavings all over our house is a real plus <laughs> uh-huh yeah okay. i'm sure that made your wife very happy when you, you know, I had I had so many people reach out and say, you know, gosh, how do you get to carve in the house? And I, I always say, like, man, you must really suck at sweeping if you're asking yeah. that question. You know, you can clean up after yourself. And in many ways, our kitchen was never cleaner than when I was sweeping it twice a day. Um, <laughs> but but it got old real fast. And so to have a space where I can let things accumulate and then at the end of the week, sweep everything out and get it back to square square one is is such a delight. You're in the Northeast. Where, where, what state are you in? Massachusetts. Yeah, the Western part. Ahmed, uh, who has influenced you the most in your woodworking? Probably, actually, my friend, the painter. Um, I can't really express how valuable it is to have somebody who is who is asking all the same questions of what it means to have a practice and what it means to do good work and what it means to push yourself technically and and um, and to to build a business around those things. Um, mm. I was self-taught as a spoon carver. I, I, just the, the style I employ is in basically entirely my own because I didn't have money to take lessons with anybody. So I would take a little snippet from here and a little snippet from there and do a whole lot of sort of logically rejiggering other people's processes because at least with spoon carving, there's no accepted best practice. It's basically, it depends on what you value. and and uh and also sort of um well so for instance in the uk where wood is fairly scarce they value the wood most and so their whole process is based around being as efficient with the wood as possible and and that's not my case i have i have as much wood as i need so i i value safety and i value um uh reliability of being able to reproduce a design and so my process is based around those two things and so it just looks different because it follows from different logical frameworks. Um, hmm. And so, uh, and so, yeah. So th there's sort of different there's different camps of spoon carving, and and I'm kind of in my own camp that, that at this point sort of has cross pollinated with enough other ones that there are people out there who carve spoons like me mostly with 10% like somebody else. Um, but having this friend who is in his own way. Uh, such a thoughtful partner to have to talk with about whatever it is that I'm struggling with um, has just been so important to me. And if you want to look up who he is, his name is Javon Lee. And if you just look up Javon Lee, you'll find him. Hmm. Then it's, I'll, I'll have to do that. Yeah. 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 Work is incredible. I mean, it's like, you, it's like you, modern Van Gogh. That's awesome. You, you had mentioned um, uh, a little bit on the tooling a little bit that I decided to thought of. Um, in the previous episode, uh, the your tools and what you have in your self-taught carving, did you go through a bunch of tooling, uh, trying eventually figuring out what works best for you? Did you buy a set and realize you only were used one of them or or anything of the sort? Not a set because I never had really had enough money. I remember feeling like I I sort of had enough money to buy a five dollar hatchet at a tag sale and like buying a. <laughs> my first Morris Lloyd knife for I think it was 25 bucks from Pinewood Forge at the time like felt like a big deal and for a, a long time I didn't feel like I could spend the $70 to buy a hook knife um, so I pieced it together over time and then as the business 
had money to be able to spend buying other tools, it the the it was more targeted than that. It, it, I've never I've never been interested in tools per se. I've been interested in process and and what tools I need for a given process. And and I've also sort of deliberately kept my tools the same and tried to figure out forms that I could do with the same tools. So once I had mm. the hook knife, really the limiting factor. And once I had designed a hook knife that could do most things, um, then the question was, you know, I can do my biggest forms and my smallest forms all with the same hook knife. And the the question, you know, it's sort of a question of what's the diameter and what's the depth of the bowl. And there's going to be a limit to how small you can go. And there's also a limit to how large you can go. And I right. found I found the upper and the lower limits of both those things. And now that I know what it is, there's a vast space in between where I can play. Hmm. You mentioned that you had two of those hook knives. Are they both the same or is it a left and a right? No. Or? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Matt uh, came up with a slight. So the, the curve that he has that is sort of, in my mind, the sort of most versatile curve you can have uh, He is a is a curve he calls the Monadnock hook, um, which is just a mountain near him. Um, and And it's sort of like a medium curve. And then he also designed what he called a mellow hook, which is a slightly more open curve which for a long time i resisted using because i just you get really tuned into what one tool will do and a lot of being as precise as i am comes down to your your intuitive control of the tool and so if you keep switching from hook to hook to hook trying to find the right curvature to match the particular area where you're carving you're actually preventing yourself from developing that deeply intuitive understanding of exactly what the tool is will and won't do but what I've found is that if I'm carving more uh, larger, more open shapes like cooking spoons, um, I can get a cleaner bowl surface by using the mellow hook, and it's worth doing. Mm-hmm. Um, in large part because if I if I do that, then it means that I can get away with only sharpening once a week. So really, that was the thing. <laughs> like, I hate sharpening, and I I found that if I run two floyds and two hooks, then I can pretty much get away with only sharpening once a week. <laughs> well, that's cool well i would i should have probably asked this on the other episode but how do you sharpen the hook knives yeah so uh, again i developed my own style because uh this is all in the book right <laughs> it's all gonna be in the book yeah so i use sandpaper wrapped around a little chunk of two by four um oh, okay and uh and then for the hooks uh it's sandpaper wrapped around a wooden dowel and okay. um yeah, yeah it's one of those things where there's a there's oh there's a, like a precise thing that I do where I'm looking for certain markers. I mean, it's similar to mm-hmm. how you sharpen anything, except you got to know what to look for. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I use a similar technique to uh, sharpen a scorp. So, yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Sandpaper around a dial. Yeah. So what has been your biggest stumbling block? Oh, probably thinking that other people's prices had anything to do with me. When I, when I started out... Um, thinking that I was going to start selling spoons online. So so when I was, first couple of years I was carving spoons, I was just selling them at my Christmas tree farm. And that worked great. But then eventually I wanted to quit this seasonal part-time job that I had. And I thought I would replace that income, which was just a fraction of my income with carving and selling spoons. And I looked on Instagram. At that point, I didn't even have a cell phone, but I you know, was, could find it on a laptop, clicking through somebody's website. And I could see that there were people who seemed to be making that amount of money, at least carving spoons. And I thought, why shouldn't I be able to do it? And so I got my first cell phone and joined Instagram back in 2013. And 
and no, it would have been later. It would have been like 2015. Yeah, we're coming up on eight or nine years now. Um, and I thought that because I'd been carving for a couple of years and my stuff was similar-ish in quality to work that I've seen from people who have much bigger reputations than me, that I should be able to charge that amount. And it was a rude lesson that that is not how the world works. And that's not what that's not why they're able to charge that amount of money that when you're talking something that is not a commodity like grain or steel, they're not buying that thing from that person because it fulfills some essential need for which they're just looking for the, the best price or they're, you know, that, that the quality of the thing that I'm doing would somehow justify charging the same price. Their price is justified by the reputation that they have. And I didn't have any reputation. And mm-hmm. that new when I started out, I, you know, I, I was spinning my wheels, trying to asking for double what I should have been asking for. Mm-hmm. And, and after a year of really failing to get any traction, I cut my prices in half and things took off. And mm-hmm. it made me realize that, you know, you've got to put in your dues of building a reputation and, and the, the price that you get to charge for something is at least in the spoon carving scene, I understand that in in with products where there's uh, there's more overhead in terms of materials cost and all that, that charging time and materials might be a reasonable way of achieving a price. But for a spoon, time and materials is kind of meaningless. And really, determines the price is well, you know, what is achieving the goal that you want to achieve? And I I came to realize that the thing that I need more than anything else is momentum. I need orders coming in so that I have a reason to carve so that I can get better so that people can see that I'm better and I can build a reputation. And that momentum required me to let go of my ego. Uh, and that was the hardest thing. Wow, that is a strong message. Mm. Yes. This and so much more on the podcast every day. <laughs> yeah. Emmett <laughs> Audio. Exactly. Emmett Audio. If you're wondering what the podcast is about, that's a that's a nice little preview right there. Yeah. There you go. There you go. That's deep. So. Emmett, how has the internet used your work? Oh, it's been everything. I wouldn't be able to do what I do without the internet. I'm keenly aware that there is not a local market for spoons. Um, it probably isn't for anyone, even in New York City, if there wasn't Instagram and social media making the spoon carving a thing that people are aware of, there would not be this sort of social interest in spoons. So mm-hmm. As much as spoon carving is about being present in your daily reality, it is also something that's deeply couched in the internet and in the joint culture that we're making. And as such, it is, uh, I think, a really positive example of how the internet can be good. Um, And I find tremendous hope in that. That is really interesting. Something something like spoon carving that was largely a backwoods cabin kind of ordeal is is so ingrained as an internet community yeah. in that way yeah i think it's i think it's right in the sweet spot of something that feels accessible and yet something that you can go down an endless rabbit hole and yeah. something you know something where you can be satisfied with what you make the very first time and something that you can be chasing for 50 years mm-hmm. and something where somebody can be proud of the you know first rough thing that they made and something where somebody can do something absolutely exquisite and mind-blowing and they can all exist together and and there's there's relatively little barrier to entry. I mean, I was so poor that I couldn't afford a hook knife and I was still able to start. Mm-hmm. That's 
telling. Yeah, yeah. And there's so much you can learn, even as a general woodworker. I've heard so many people oh, yeah. say that you want to understand grain direction, carve a few spoons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's I think it's even I think it's even deeper than that. I think it's, you know, a knife is is only controlled by the stops within your body, within your stance and your posture. And mm-hmm. so it is infinitely flexible and yet it requires you to understand your body mechanics at a very deep and intuitive level. And when you do understand it, it makes all of the other reasons why woodworking tools are the way they are make much more sense. Hmm. That's an excellent point. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Actually, your, your actual physical posture plays so much of an important role on how you actually initiate and complete those cuts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And reduce vibrations and provide mm-hmm. natural safety stops and pivot points the whole thing yeah okay looking forward to the book (laughs) (laughs) yeah sure well with that um so uh where can folks find you on the interwebs Emmett? yeah you can just search my name uh my website is my name my instagram handle is my name you could just google my name that would work fine okay fantastic mark what about yourself i'm at plate11.com at Mark Builds It on Instagram, Play 11 Woodworking on YouTube, and JointEffort.net. Kyle? You can always find me at Barton.Kyle on Instagram or Kyle Barton on YouTube. Sean, what about yourself? I'm Sean W78 on most social medias. And that just about wraps it up for this show. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on the podcatcher of your choice. Just search for the Modern Woodworkers Association. And while you're there, please leave us a review. You can follow us on Instagram at MWA underscore podcast. And if you'd like to support the podcast, go over to patreon.com slash MWA podcast. But the best thing you can do is tell a friend. Word of mouth goes a long way in sharing our discussion.